With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. talk about myths baby and I am your host Liv. Well here we are with yet another episode in misunderstood, misrepresented, misremembered women. Today Phaedra. Today's episode is also special in that it is both a regular narrative episode of the podcast and one of the conversation episodes I've been releasing throughout the month because, frankly, I just ended up with extra content. So I decided to put my conversation with Jennifer Saint, author of the upcoming and much-anticipated novel Ariadne, into this episode of Phaedra. Jenny and I talked about Phaedra and how her story has been handled and understood in sources and in later representation, and Jenny will also be back on the show later in a couple of months or so to talk about her novel of Phaedra's sister, Ariadne. That means that Friday's episode is going to be my conversation with Dr. Ellie Mackin-Roberts, author of Heroines of Olympus, about... Yes, that's right. Everyone's favorite, Persephone. And oh my god, did Ellie tell me some fascinating things about Persephone's mythology and history that I had no idea existed. It blew my whole mind. I can't wait for you guys to hear it on Friday. But that's Friday. 
today is all about Phaedra. I went back and forth about Phaedra and how to handle her story because, well, not only is it tied to the worst mortal man of all Greek mythology, Theseus, but it's also generally dark for Phaedra and beyond. I debated doing episodes retelling the play Hippolytus by Euripides, which is what Phaedra is most famous for, but we're not going to go there because, quite frankly, it's problematic as all hell. Instead, I want to tell you about the woman beyond that dark chapter that made her both famous and infamous. This is episode 118, Phaedra and the Curse of Theseus and a conversation with Jennifer Saint. Phaedra's heritage and family we know quite well, even if she is often forgotten or glossed over in it. Because Phaedra was, as you might remember, a princess of Crete, For a full rundown of what exactly happened with that poor family on Crete, you can listen to episode 79, that is LXXIX. But to recap, Phaedra was the daughter of King Minos, son of Zeus and Europa, and Queen Pacify, sister of Circe and sometimes a witch herself. To say this was a dysfunctional family would be the understatement of a lifetime. Pacify was cursed due to her husband's hubris. She was cursed to love a bull and gave birth to the Minotaur because of it. Her children by Minos were forced to watch all of this, to watch their mother go through what must have been a horrifically traumatic experience. And the children of Minos and Pacify that we're concerned with here are Ariadne and Phaedra, the only two daughters. Phaedra watched as her sister escaped their life on Crete with this handsome prince of Athens, Theseus, who she helped to defeat the Minotaur. As all this happened, as all of their lives changed forever, as their half-brother was killed and Ariadne taken away, Phaedra watched. Phaedra watched as her sister got away from what we can assume was a pretty bad situation. She escaped and, as I'm sure Phaedra believed was brought to Athens, where she married Theseus and became queen, able to just live happily ever after. All of this, Phaedra watched. The character of Phaedra herself often gets lost, behind her half-brother, the monstrous Minotaur, and his horrifying heritage, and behind her sister, Ariadne, who left with Theseus. She gets lost behind Ariadne even beyond Ariadne and Theseus, because in the end, she marries a god, Dionysus. But when does Phaedra learn that her sister didn't actually end up with Theseus? That's the question I'm most interested in, and it's one we don't really have an answer to. Phaedra's story is told primarily in Euripides' play Hippolytus. It's also in Ovid's much later work, The Heroides. But what of Phaedra in the ancient world, before the play by Euripides? It's really hard to say anything about her story beyond Hippolytus. 
How Phaedra ends up marrying Theseus isn't clear in many of the sources. She's just married to him. It's reasonable to understand their marriage as one of diplomacy. This is suggested in some sources. I can't find a primary one, but very smart people reference it, and I trust them. This diplomatic marriage comes later in both of their lives, presumably long after, although certainly at some point after, Theseus straight abandoned her own sister, Ariadne, on the island of Naxos. It happened after he raped an Amazon, either Antiope or Hippolyta. Whichever Amazonian queen it may have been, bared his child, Hippolytus, who was sent to be raised in Theseus's hometown of Trazen. From there, stories of the horrors of Theseus vary, but ultimately he raped tens of women before he married Phaedra. And it's safe to assume he married Phaedra to keep the peace. Theseus was king of Athens by that time, after, of course, causing the death of his father. He's king of Athens, and Athens and Crete would like to remain at peace after their more dramatic relationship with the Minotaur and his Athenian victims. So, Phaedra married Theseus. Basic understanding of human emotions and interactions might tell you that she probably wasn't particularly happy with this. After all, she'd first met him when he ran off with her sister, and then what? Well, there was the time he had a child with an Amazon, and the time he kidnapped the very, very young Helen of Sparta, among many, many other women. Yes, this was the man she was getting to marry. If you want to imagine things started out just a little better for Phaedra, there is the possibility that she actually believed her sister had died through no fault of Theseus's, instead of straight up knowing that he abandoned her. In that case, Phaedra may have only seen Theseus being kind and attentive to her sister before they left Crete, and she could have been under the impression that he would be the same to her when they were married. But that is where the positivity ends, because ultimately she married Theseus, a man even Plutarch thought was pretty shit to women. That Phaedra and Theseus's relationship lacked love is a fact we have across most, if not all, sources. She doesn't love her husband. He's a monster. They do, however, have two children. We can now recognize that Theseus was, by far, the so-called hero who was most violent towards women. But even then, in the mythology, objectively, he was not a catch for Phaedra beyond his being king. And when these myths are first told, too, Athens wasn't anything special. So he didn't even have that going for him. He was just a random king of a random city-state in ancient Greece. Not to mention the origins of these are probably Cretan myths, in which case they didn't have any desire to make Athens look good. Theseus was just a guy who killed the Minotaur and did a bunch of other horrific shit. But that is Phaedra's lot, and there isn't anything she can do about it. She's at the whim of her brother, the new king of Crete by that point, and the husband he gave her to, the literal worst, Theseus. And yet, the story Phaedra is most famous for is, again, that of Hippolytus. Hippolytus was Theseus's son by the Amazonian queen, 
whoever she may be. Pop culture and more recent receptions of Phaedra's story would have you believe she was a seductress, that she set out to seduce her stepson, that when he rejected her out of his piety towards Artemis, the goddess he devoted himself to, that Phaedra died by suicide, leaving a note that accused him of raping her. That obviously is not the whole story, nor is it an accurate representation of Phaedra's motivations. The reason I'm not telling you the story of Euripides' play, Hippolytus, is that last detail. Phaedra falsely accuses Hippolytus of raping her. I'm not even going to dip my toe into the idea of false rape accusations, lest anyone believe that it is an actual problem, when it is not. At all. Instead, we're going to talk about Phaedra's true motivations, how she got to that place, and how she felt about it. Because none of Phaedra's tragedy is on her. As with so many stories like these, where the woman is reduced to a caricature, a mess of horrible stereotypes and misconceptions, Phaedra was cursed by a god. Or possibly, even inadvertently, cursed by her own sister. Because when Theseus abandoned Ariadne on Naxos, some sources have her uttering a curse upon him and his family. A family which Ariadne could have never foreseen would have ultimately included her own sister. But even in Euripides' famous telling of Hippolytus, it's Aphrodite pulling the strings on Phaedra. And not for anything she did, but for the actions of a man, Hippolytus. A woman whose tragic fate is determined by the actions of a man in angering a god. How very familiar. It's even like a family curse, in a way, because the same thing happened to her poor mother, Pacify. Hippolytus ignored Aphrodite, even spurned her worship, in favor of Artemis. One might want to be impressed by a young man wanting to worship the so-called virgin goddess of the hunt, Artemis, and we should be to an extent. It's just that it results in Aphrodite's hatred of him, her desire to ruin his life, and enter his stepmother, Phaedra, who meets Hippolytus when he's a young man and she is probably middle-aged. It depends on how you play the story, but she certainly wasn't that much older than him given everything that had happened. Aphrodite caused Phaedra to be completely, utterly in love with Hippolytus, a love that is all-encompassing and overpowering. It's yet another example of the fate of a woman being the means of punishing a man. In Ovid's Herodes, which are letters written by women to men who harmed them in one way or another, Phaedra details how her love of Hippolytus is, in truth, her first love, how she never loved her husband, Theseus, and therefore is in a way untouched by him. She believes herself to be pure and awaiting Hippolytus because she'd never experienced anything that felt like love. In Euripides, again, it's all the work of Aphrodite in her desire to punish Hippolytus. Regardless of what you read, though, Phaedra is sympathetic. She's either a woman overtaken by the powers of a god or a woman who's never before experienced real love, real passion, due to her arranged marriage with an absolutely horrific man we all hate. She's not a seductress. She's not manipulative. She's manipulated. Even in Hippolytus, the problematic play she's most famous for, Phaedra doesn't initially want to cause any trouble. 
She loves Hippolytus due to Aphrodite's machinations, but she doesn't even want to act on it. She wants to keep her passions to herself, keep them secret. She'd rather die than reveal the shame of her feelings, than cause the shame for her husband. It's actually her nurse that ultimately causes it to become known, telling Hippolytus and unraveling the whole mess. And for his part, Hippolytus is a true asshole in the play. He's a real son of Theseus. Phaedra, in the end, dies by suicide when she knows her secret is out. But there's a note left behind, accusing Hippolytus of rape. Again, this is why I don't want to tell the play explicitly, but I think it's important to mention. This note causes Theseus to curse his son, to exile him, and Hippolytus is eventually killed on his way from the city, when a bull roars from the sea and startles his horses. But not before Hippolytus goes on a wildly misogynistic rant. Because again... He's the son of Theseus. And that is the Phaedra of Euripides' Hippolytus, but it isn't the ultimate interpretation of Phaedra. Phaedra is a product of the stories around her. She's a product of the tragedy of her family, her father's mistakes, and the way her mother was punished for them. She's a product of her marriage to Theseus, one she surely didn't seek out on her own. She's a product of the machinations of the gods. Through it all, though, Phaedra pushed back on her fate as much as she could. She tried to keep her passions to herself. She realized the severity of her feelings. She tried and tried. Phaedra's story was, for the most part, just her varied attempts to survive the life she'd been given. And that, listeners, is Phaedra beyond Hippolytus. Unfortunately, her story is linked to the play so much that she isn't left with much beyond it, So I realized today's episode was a little bit funny, but I wanted to talk about her. I think she's really important, and I think that she's really misunderstood. But the episode isn't over, because I spoke with Jennifer Saint, author of the upcoming book, Ariadne, which I personally am so excited for. We talked all about Phaedra, how Jenny approached Phaedra's story in her book, and generally just how we both understand Phaedra as a character. It was really interesting, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. So here is that conversation, but a very quick note, a couple minutes of our initial audio was very bad, like unlistenable. I've kept the sort of welcome message so that it wasn't so awkward and you can kind of hear what it sounded like and why I otherwise had to cut that section. It was only a couple minutes it was lost. We just chatted about how Phaedra got to be with Theseus in the first place, something I've already told you, so you are not missing out. But I'm explaining because what you'll hear of the conversation sort of leaps into her life with Theseus. Jenny and I had a fascinating chat about the intricacies of Phaedra, these variations on her, and as usual, just how shit Theseus was. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, I'm here with Jennifer Saint, author of the forthcoming novel Ariadne, which I am so excited to read. And you will be back, though, to talk about Ariadne because today is all about Phaedra. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. All right. So yeah, Phaedra and, and Theseus. I think one thing too is she's so 
Phaedra so I suppose overshadowed by the story of Ariadne yeah and also her story has almost no good bits versus Ariadne's which does mm-hmm. yeah it's an interesting sort of dynamic between those two and as you say you're right there's not really any stories of them appearing together we're sort of just told that they're siblings but there's so little representation of them having any kind of relationship yeah and I I was just really interested in what that relationship would have been and I thought like you say Phaedra is such a tragic character um whereas Ariadne has got more adventure more kind of joyfulness in some of her story um and yeah so I think when it came to developing Phaedra I thought about why that difference might be with them as well and I imagined that with Ariadne, perhaps she had known a time before the Minotaur, whereas Phaedra is younger, kind of coming up behind her sister. And um, perhaps she's always lived with this horror in the palace, these terrible sacrifices being made to the monster. Um, and then Ariadne is the one who runs away with the hero, who must have been as horrendous as we as we consider him to be, he must have had an appeal for Ariadne, at least at first. And I kind of imagined Phaedra as the younger sister, the one in the shadows, like you say, um, seeing her sister do this kind of exciting, adventurous thing. And then it's Phaedra who ends up actually living the reality of that. It was sort of what Ariadne wanted, and Phaedra's the one who gets it. And it turns out to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think it's important that we recognize as much as we consider Theseus to be awful. I mean, there's certainly a reason that Ariadne went off with him. And and by all respect, I mean, he was a hero. He did appear heroic. The Sort of the most troubling thing about him is kind of how everyone just ended up ruined because of him but it all sort of happened yeah after the fact so you really don't see him coming (laughs) he sneaks up on you and then (laughs) suddenly your life is over definitely he must have had some kind of charisma some kind of glamour about him yeah yeah (laughs) really he must have been really handsome he must have been Mm -hmm. really charming just kind of like sociopath level just like really reel you in into thinking that he's not going to completely ruin your life Mm mm-hmm but then he does. Yeah, exactly. So I don't I don't know how much we want to go into to your book. And like I said, I haven't yeah. gotten it yet. So <laughs> I, I haven't read it yet. Um, but I definitely want, I mean, you'll be back, thankfully, to talk about your book and Ariadne specifically. But do you want to give any kind of information about how how you went about researching, like what you've learned as you wrote this book about, about Ariadne, but I'm sure Phaedra plays a, a considerable role yeah, she does. Well, I actually, I mean, I did a lot of research before I started writing. And then approaching it as a writer, I kind of had to forget a lot of it to turn mm. Phaedra into a character that existed for me, that was my interpretation of her. So then I had to research her all over again for this podcast. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> I have to remember it all. But what was really important to me with Phaedra is I wanted to tell a, a story from a feminist perspective. And the, the problematic thing about Phaedra's story is that it perpetuates this myth that false rape allegations are a more common thing than they are. So I had to be really careful. I, mean, I had to really think about, well, what story do I want to tell about Phaedra? Because I don't want to tell that one. And, you know, when I was looking at that aspect of her story, 
it it was I was writing actually kind of shortly after the the me too hashtag took mm-hmm. off and that was that was really present in my mind and it was that it was so obviously such a common experience for women to to be harassed to be assaulted to it was such a shocking hashtag because he suddenly realized this is this is everywhere this is so pervasive this is part of this dominant culture and Phaedra's story exists in this in this culture where rape allegations false rape allegations are so rare you know perhaps um four percent of rape allegations are false that's the statistic from the home office in the UK so obviously Mm -hmm. not worldwide um but it's kind of between two and six percent I think in Europe and the US so it's very low but the belief that people that women make false allegations about this is is so much more prevalent Mm -hmm. and I think if that's the case, that reflects something about the culture that we're living in, the narrative that is prevailing. And I really didn't want to um, do anything that would contribute to that. So I really wanted to tell Phaedra's story and I really wanted to tell it in a different way. And I won't kind of give away the book (laughs) before anybody reads it because it's not out yet. But yeah, but I would definitely say that I approached that differently. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's really important. And because you're right, it is, I mean, it is a story of false, a story of a, a false rape allegation, which is definitely not something that, you know, yeah, like you say, regularly happens. And we don't want to perpetuate the idea that it happens at all, let alone yeah. as, you know, a major issue or, or the story of the, you know, downfall of a man because a woman did this. It's yeah, exactly. There's lots of varied versions, it seems about kind of how she got in that position how he reacted and why and it it seems like there isn't I mean not that there's regularly a consensus in mythology on anything but -hmm. in this story specifically those little details seem to vary a lot from what I've read yeah um and I know when I started researching her I like I always go to I've got the Oxford Classical Dictionary from when I was at university, like a hundred years ago. Um, and you go there and you look at Phaedra and it just says, see Hippolytus. So she doesn't merit her own entry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it tells you that there, there are lost plays about her. So there was Euripides wrote one before the one that we know. Um, mm-hmm. And there's Sophocles play as well, both of which apparently portrayed her, I've got the quote, as lustful and unscrupulous. Yep, I read that just now as I tried to prep for this as well. I was like, oh, gross. And also a bummer for Euripides. Like, I always want to think better for him, but it seems not. He must have rethought things. I mean, it obviously didn't go mm. down very well because in his mm. in the one that we know, the Hippolytus, she comes across as a lot more sympathetic. She's much more... She's much more of an innocent victim. She's like afflicted with this terrible passion, but she she tries. She's prepared to die rather than act on it. It's only right. that the nurse betrays her. It's the nurse that goes to Hippolytus and says, mm. "Phaedra's in love with you. Maybe you should have an affair with her." And um, he, I mean, it, the play is called Hippolytus, but he doesn't come across very sympathetically. <laughs> he goes on mm-hmm. to an enormous rant about how awful women are. Um, so you you don't feel that bad when you know the bull comes out of the sea and <laughs> kills him. So yeah, but I I studied that play um, when I was doing my A levels, so I was seventeen. So it's also in the past. <laughs> That's interesting. So I I love I like the idea that that Euripides learned 
learned, you know, or sort of adapted his his thought process on it. It's an interesting thing to specifically compare her to Ariadne too. Like you said, you know, she she sort of gets the life that Ariadne thought she was getting mm-hmm. and and it turned out to be so not what anyone probably wanted for themselves. And then yeah. Ariadne, of course, has her own issues on what version you want to believe in terms of how her life turned out. But I will yeah. always go with she married a god and lived happily ever after. So much <laughs> better than she died for no good reason on an island. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then the the comparison of having her sister have that tragic fate is such an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, and I just, I thought there's just, there's something so poignant in it to kind of, I I think as like a younger sister, always wanting to be like your older sisters. And then when you get there and you find out, oh no, I'm married to Theseus. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, look what my life is now. This man killed his father because he simply couldn't remember the basic instructions of changing the colors of his sails. (laughs) Because he was so busy getting away from your sister who he left to die. Exactly. (laughs) Such a good guy. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. What kind of drew you to these characters in the first place? It was, well, I mean, really, it was just that when I was at university, I read, that's when I read Ovid's Heroides, and mm-hmm. I just loved that idea of, of these women having a voice. And so 
Phaedra's letter in the Herodes formed a really big part of the Phaedra in my book. So I was really interested in that idea that I finished university, I went off to be a teacher. It's kind of in the back of my mind for a long time. And then it, it was probably when I was reading Greek myths, like, you know, children's Greek myths to my own sons. And we were reading Theseus and the Minotaur. And it just said, you know, Ariadne helped him, gave him the, the thread, um, and then he left her. And the story just didn't come back to her. I was like, she got, you know, a couple of sentences. And even my son, who absolutely loves Greek mythology, he was like, well, what happened to her? And I just thought, there's a story that really needs to be told. Absolutely. I mean, she really is the complete brains behind him Mm. succeeding against the Minotaur. And then, yeah, to have her story be so forgotten and sort of ignored in place of Theseus is always, that's always something that's felt very problematic to me as well yeah. and I think yeah she's very ripe for for a novelization yeah when it comes to Phaedra do you have any anything that's really stood out for you in terms of her character so obviously I use the Euripides play Hippolytus um to kind of as, as, as a starting point and then I kind of went from that what I didn't really want Phaedra to be because she's such a victim in that play um mm. and there's there's that kind of like irony in the way that it, it's Aphrodite and of course Phaedra's mother Pasiphae the same thing really happens here she was cursed to fall in love but it was it's the Phaedra and Ovid's Heroides that I just thought she is such an interesting character because she's so clever and she's so passionate in that letter and she's so unashamed as well you know she's got all of these all of this clever rhetoric all of these reasons why Hippolytus should fall in love with her back and she's not she's not apologetic for it at mm. all and I thought that that is a great woman to write about yeah I agree almost like you know the idea being Theseus was so awful and she just happened to fall in love with another guy who I mean fine was his son but less so about any kind of coercion or or any of the more problematic bits and and really just a woman who's in love <laughs> yeah and the fact that it's Theseus's son but he is so unlike Theseus I, you know I sort of thought if she's been married to Theseus for however many years and in the Euripides play they are living in exile aren't they because Theseus has murdered somebody of course oh yeah um in I think Seneca play which I didn't use very much but that opens Theseus is absent because he's gone to the underworld to abduct Persephone and that's so he's not around (laughs) where and then you have Hippolyta who is devoted to Artemis and he he wants to stay virginal and he just wants to you know run with his dogs and his horses um to the mountains I thought he's the absolute opposite of Theseus and for somebody married to Theseus you can see why he would have represented something so appealing to Phaedra um and even beyond who he is himself, I thought, you know, that the intensity of her infatuation. I, I thought about this when I was listening to your episode with, um, is it Yentl? Mm-hmm. On Dionysus. Yeah, on Dionysus. And when she talked about Harry Styles fans getting in touch with her. And I thought that intense infatuation is something I think most most teenage girls go through. It's really relatable. And it's yeah. not not really about the object of infatuation. It's about you and your feelings. And 
I just thought for Phaedra, Hippolyta, it doesn't matter who Hippolytus is. Like, number one, he's not Theseus. <laughs> and number two, he's not her life in Athens. He's something completely different. And in the Heroides, she talks about how she wants to run off to the forest with the hounds and hunt deer and do all these things that she's never done before. And I thought, it doesn't matter about Hippolytus. She just wants to be free. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, he is the child of an Amazon, too. So if you ignore the theseus of it all yeah. you know he's the son of an amazonian queen like it, it it seems the best and most realistic version to to put him as somebody who does want to go off with artemis and and be in the woods and hunting and everything i wonder did you catch the german street theater production of the 15 heroines no I didn't see it. I really wish I had done. And this 15 Heroines feature was very, like Ariadne, they had a very young actress and Mm. she was sort of brilliant and cunning and and very fascinating. And then Phaedra was very like stately and regal and just like almost the opposite of Ariadne in a way that I think really shows what she had to go through yeah to be by being with Theseus and by, and then, you know, falling for somebody else almost because her husband was such a mess and the idea of of it taking place while he is off kidnapping the goddess of the underworld you know adds such an extra level of of why she might want to get away from him at all costs yeah well you're just immediately on her side i think as soon as the play opens uh-huh yeah i need to read more roman plays i i almost never do i'll read like snippets of them online but but i think seneca is probably worth the time at least especially in that case yeah i mean i i haven't read any more but um i also need to yeah i i know he also read he also wrote a version of medea that i'm interested in Mm. um but i just always focus on the greek obviously or ovid yeah that that's that's really what i do as well I, I want to, I can't wait to to cover more of the um, Heroides because they really are something else when it mm-hmm. comes to that. There are some stories that he tells that are so perfect in the way he, he portrays them. Uh, I love his Medea in the Metamorphoses, mm. obviously love his Medusa, things mm. like that, you know, were quite innovative, but not necessarily everything. <laughs> yeah. So... When it comes to to Theseus in the story of Phaedra, um, does he tend to be, I mean, certainly in these plays, it's a little bit different than than the mythology we have of him, which is quite a bit more overt, at least in terms of how we're able to see it now and analyze it, that he is quite horrific. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the play version of Theseus and Ovid's version of Theseus. Well... I mean, I, I love it in, in the Heroides how angry Phaedra is with Theseus and like she doesn't hold back. I think she calls him Aegeus's lying son. Um, mm. she, there's something in there that she says um, it's Theseus and his son together have been the destruction of two sisters. So she really like pins it on him, um, which, which is the other sort of interpretation of Phaedra that you can have with what she does you know if if you want to kind of go with actually she is a she is making a malicious allegation she is trying to destroy this family then you do think she's got fairly extreme provocation for doing so given what Theseus has done to her family already um that you know he's 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 destroyed them and 
does she know what happened to Ariadne? Or is she married to this man, always wondering what really went on on Naxos? Where is Ariadne now? So her anger does kind of, I think, lend a certain like mitigation to what she does. Um, mm-hmm. And I like that Ovid doesn't hold back from that, that he really kind of has her give vent to how furious she is with him. I think in the Euripides play, he just comes across as a little bit slow, like dim-witted. Mm. Um, because, he, do, I mean, he doesn't really have... A main, he's, not, he's not the interesting part of the play, is he? Um, it's, no. it's Phaedra and, and Hippolytus. And then he gets so angry straight away. And, uh, yeah, this is the other thing that I thought, that he's so quick to believe that Hippolytus has done this to his wife, even though... Shouldn't he know that his son is dedicated to Artemis? Shouldn't he know that his son has sworn off women altogether? That he's the last person that would do that. And mm-hmm. I think, well, doesn't that tell you something about Theseus that he can't believe his son? He's he's more willing to believe his son is a rapist than he is to believe that his son is a devoted follower of Artemis. Mm-hmm. And I think that just shows you exactly what Theseus is like. And then, of course, he calls upon the vengeance on Hippolytus, and then he laments it afterwards. Yeah, right. Of course, I'll I'll, I'll cause your death, and then I'll feel bad about it. But yeah. it's far too late for that. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to remember too. His son is as much as he is also the son of a, an Amazon. He's the son of an Amazon once more by assault. Mm-hmm. You know, the Amazons didn't go with Theseus willingly. No. And so she had this child, the child went to live with Theseus's original family and then grew up without him and was the product of this horrible relationship. I mean, there's just so many things going on that are still always the fault of Theseus in whatever way that it just seems like, of course, he'll he'll just be kind of awful and stupid and just kind of there to perform the acts of the play versus playing a kind of important or interesting role yeah and that's the thing that I I think just annoys me about Theseus the most that he is always just kind of yeah performing these acts these like big heroic adventurous acts but he's not really an interesting person in himself so why does he get all the glory Mm -hmm. he's just sort of doing it because that's what heroes are meant to do and even if you give him a bit of the benefit of the doubt that's true because when he's a child you know his cousin is Heracles who comes to visit and he just like decides that he wants to be like Heracles yeah so I don't think he does anything for any good reasons he just wants the fame and the glory and he's willing to kind of do whatever it takes to get that like in the case of traveling from from treason to to Athens in the first place and just killing all these people that were supposed to believe deserved it but it seems to me he just always is looking to arrive at a place with glory and he'll lie about how he got it if he has to. Yeah, definitely. And I think he would have been telling Ariadne all the stories of everything he'd done on the way to Athens to claim his birthright and leaving out a lot that might have changed her mind. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I stand by, I think he's just a serial killer. The likelihood that there were so many people that just so deserve death in such creative ways on that road. I mean, it just seems (laughs) implausible. Just a little. (laughs) The Heroides, as I'm remembering the the performance again, which just sticks in my head completely mm. now every time I think of, of Ovid's Heroides, she mentions a lot, I believe, about how he killed her brother as well. Yeah. And I think it's it's one of those things that's often 
I mean, it depends on the sourcing too about how people seem to feel about it or talk about it. But, you know, he he did kidnap her sister Ariadne, abandoned her on an island. And like you say, it, it's unclear whether Phaedra knows what happened to her sister or whether it's just a horrible mystery. But he also did kill the Minotaur, which was their brother. And, and certainly he was a monstrous brother, yes. But it's very possible there was still some kind of of familial relationship there where the the brother's death would be you know an affecting thing to happen to a family and Ariadne helped but of course you know you can dive into quite how much of that was because she was sort of under Theseus's creepy charming spell (laughs) um and but Phaedra had nothing to do with it so the idea that her she possibly blamed him also for the death of her brother in all this is certainly you know it's it's possible and i think it's an interesting thing to think about as well whether whether that also is another thing that that she feels that theseus did that you know is sort of irredeemable yeah definitely and i mean i suppose their feelings about minotaur would just be so complex and given the way that he's born and that it's this terrible punishment visited on their mother for the crimes of their father I just thought, you know, what what does that do to your family anyway? What does that do to your psyche to grow up with that as an example of what happens to women? And you can kind of see, I suppose, in a way, her just wanting to turn the tables, just thinking, well, it's always women paying the price for men's actions. Finally, when she's really backed into a corner, when the nurse has betrayed her, when she thinks that her sons will might be disinherited you know because she's going to be shamed for this love that she can't control then she does the only thing that she can think of to do and thinks well finally a man can pay the price for something at last Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely gosh it's just yeah the the things that Theseus has done that you know deserve punishment but also like you're saying that their family is just there's just so many horrible things to have happened to one family, especially when it comes to the women of the family. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's quite the case of one of those horribly cursed Greek mythological families without there being kind of an explicit curse on them, you know? No, just a series of bad luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, at least when it comes to, you know, the house of atreus or the tantalids or whatever you want to call them that's an explicit curse it's multiple curses so when something bad happens it's like well you know our family's very cursed (laughs) but maybe because it's all happening to women on you know on crete it seems less about a curse and more about just greek mythology's tendency towards reigning havoc on unsuspecting women yeah um, and I think, um, you know, the, the Phaedra that comes across in the Herodias as well, she does come up with all of these arguments for why Hippolyta should fall in love with her. And she kind of sets them all out really cleverly. And I thought, you know, that really shows, I mean, it shows how clever she is, obviously, and how persuasive. But also, I think that she doesn't really have an understanding of how love works because you can't really argue somebody into falling in love with you. And I and I thought about, you know, well, why that would be for Phaedra. She hasn't had an experience of it. I can't imagine that she witnessed much of a loving relationship between her parents, given everything. Um, and, you know, and then obviously she's been shipped off and married to Theseus. And I thought she's, she argues that, 
she's as virginal as Hippolytus because she's never loved before and I think Mm. I think she is quite as kind of clever and passionate as she is quite emotionally stunted in that way that she just doesn't really understand what love is and so maybe doesn't recognize that what she has for Hippolytus isn't really love it's right something else you know about her dissatisfaction with her life yeah that's really interesting and sort of an added level of tragedy in there Mm. that yeah that you know she's in a position where she just thinks well I can just convince him to love me because I have all these these good reasons and yeah surely that's how it works because she just doesn't know any better Mm. that's that's very interesting and and sad (laughs) yeah well I mean yeah her story is such a tragic one but yeah, I, but I just think so worth exploring. She's so interesting. There's so many layers. Yeah, that's so true. It's sort of rare, I think, that I cover a woman's story that is just like pure tragedy. Fascinating mm. and, and really complex, but really just unfortunate tragedy throughout. I don't think she really has many good things happen to her. No. Well, I mean, this is this is what happens, I suppose, if you could be in the story of Theseus's wife, Theseus, the unfortunate woman that has to be married to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, God, the list he goes through. Such a mess of a hero. <laughs> but I think she like she wasn't she wasn't as, as big a part of the book when I started writing it. Um mm. but every person who read an early draft just said well we just want more Phaedra you put more of her story in and she just kept growing and growing throughout so I thought well clearly there is there is something about her that people want to know more yeah I think that's very true I'm glad to hear that she's in it a lot I'm very very much looking forward to to your book now like I said you know you will be back to discuss the book more explicitly closer to Mm -hmm. the release but is there anything you want to to talk about it right now and I mean certainly tell us when it comes out and maybe a little bit more about it and yeah so it comes out in the UK on the 29th of April and in America on May the 4th and I am not sure about Canada. It does come out of the American date in Canada. I've checked. Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, and it is um, so a retelling of the myth of the Minotaur from Ariadne's perspective um, and exploring why she behaved the way she did, what was it that drew her to Theseus, there must have been something, and what happened to her afterwards. Very exciting Gosh, so much Greek mythology content all the time. I love it. There's, it seems like the world is so ready for so much of it right now, and I think it's we're in such an ideal time for it. So, very excited to read it. Can't get enough of like these books coming out. But yeah, I suppose the thing is as well, like when you're putting Greek mythology into a novel, you do have to make up a, like a coherent chronology. So, <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that just doesn't exist in the myth. So it does I, not. I did have to kind of make up a lot of um, kind of just I just decided what age I wanted them to be and how I wanted it to work and when the Minotaur would have been brought into existence because nothing makes any sense does it oh my god no so I think writing a novel about these characters you do I mean I suppose like when I listen to your podcast quite often you have you know academics on and you have historians on and I learn so much hearing them talk but I really approached it as I wanted to tell a story and I wanted them to be kind of characters that I could believe in. So, yeah. So I did, so I did have to make them something maybe different to how they might appear in other, in other versions. I think that's so important too, though, you know, and I, I'm 
thrilled to have talked to you about this like this because I think that's a very different side like you're saying like I don't I am not an academic you know very very much so and so I also love speaking with them and hearing that side of things but but I think I connect a little bit well sort of I would say equally because I also have trouble I have trouble making things up in the mythology because I'm so obsessed with the accuracies and like the various versions and accuracies that really mean like five different things can be yeah. at once and and those things so I, I really am appreciating speaking with someone who was able to get past that and and you know force a story from it because I think that's a it is a really important skill it's really something you have to do if you're going to write fiction based yeah. on mythology and so I'm excited. Yeah, it's been interesting to hear how you've done that, how you've gone about it. Well, it was it was a stumbling block at first because I was really caught up in I need to make it as accurate as I can, even though, I mean, it's all made up. There wasn't a minotaur? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but I think it was kind of, it was it was when I discussed it with my agent and she was like, well, look, this whole section is really, is really boring. Nothing happens. And I was like, well, that's because that's the myth. It, yeah, but <laughs> make something happen. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's certainly what an agent is good for as well, really like yeah. forcing that out of you. Very handy. So yeah. I think once I got rid of the image of like a lot of angry classicists reading over my shoulder going, wrong, <laughs> that didn't happen, then um, I could kind of write more uninhibited and just think, well, no, this, I mean, I don't think that Euripides was sitting there thinking like, I've got to make sure that my Phaedra lines up exactly with previous versions of her I mean it obviously wasn't because he wrote two totally different pages mm-hmm. so n- not that I'm comparing myself to Euripides by the way. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to make worry. that clear <laughs> didn't come off like that okay good <laughs> <laughs> no but I think you're right about it I think that's an important thing to think about because I don't think back then they would have been so concerned because it, it was just their sort of way of life and there was nothing necessarily factual or not like I have to think about that a lot. I get a lot of listeners who, you know, those poor unfortunate souls who who start thinking about the chronology oh, no. and and try to try to get my help on the chronology and every time I just my response is some variation of, "Oh, don't don't trouble yourself. Just don't you have to just get past it. You have yeah. you have to just put it out of your mind because it's impossible and and that is the thrill of those stories is is that they were adapted and they changed and they were told over different regions so what region would have a different version than another region and you know that everything is is so different and and it varied so much and and let alone chronology god that's just in like you know the variations of the story itself so i think i don't even know necessarily where my brain started this conversation from but i mean it's sort of it's my brain is like the chronology of greek mythology yeah. <laughs> can't even track itself <laughs> But it is one of those things, and I think I think that's what lends it to fiction so perfectly. Is that and now my brain got it back of of Euripides not concerning himself with it either. But I think yeah, it, it lends itself to fiction because it is so sort of pliable, and you can turn it into what what you want it to be. And it sort of comes back to the what I experience on the internet all too often of you know angry men who want to tell you what the correct version of medusa is yeah you know the so-called original myth mm-hmm. <laughs> as if as if that's a thing that can possibly exist in this world and so yeah i think euripides knew it and novelists know it now that it is sort of you can take these characters and do with them what you want and i'm 
personally thrilled to see that so many people are coming at it like let's do feminist retellings of it let's sort of take these women back from the patriarchy that came up with their stories yeah because that that's what we need these myths to do now isn't it we need like they're still they're brilliant stories and amazing characters but we want them to serve a purpose for us today in the world that we're living in so I think the feminist retellings are a really good way to do that absolutely I mean it's certainly the same reason why I have this podcast yeah you know I think yeah I think I think there's such a perfect time for that and it's yeah, it's just such an ideal situation. Everyone's kind of ready for it, other than the angry misogynists on the internet. But fuck yeah, them, that. it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing that um, that I did think about was, was again, like in the Heroides, where she justifies what she wants to do with Hippolytus by the God's own behavior. So I think as well, like really calling out that hypocrisy and just saying, you know, the gods do it. So she points out Aphrodite had an affair with Adonis, um, Eos and Cephalus. Mm. Um, Eos obviously slightly problematic. Um, And um, Atalanta and, and I'm not going to say his name correctly, um, Maliga, Maliga. I don't think anyone knows how to pronounce his name. I say Maliga or Maliaga or but I'm with you. I know who yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've changed the way that I pronounce Phaedra throughout this podcast. I think I might have said it three different ways already. Because, I mean, <laughs> I learned all these names from reading them. So it was... Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, Atalanta and Maliga, we'll call it. Yeah, and yeah, that works. He was married and she and um, Atalanta was devoted to Artemis. So they were kind of the reversal of Phaedra and Hippolytus. So... Um, I just I like the way that she, uh, well, that Ovid through Phaedra really points that out that um, this isn't, you know, we were talking at the start, we said she was portrayed as lustful and unscrupulous in these earlier versions. And she's not any worse than the gods themselves. I think that's such an important thing. And I'm very glad that it's in that version because that's something that's so rarely used in the mythology when mm. it could be. And I think it probably took a Roman. You know, yeah. reasonably, I think that the Greeks wouldn't have gone there because yeah. it, it would have been, you know, I don't want to say blasphemy because that's a very Christian term, but, you know, it, it would have been impiety, impiety yeah. in a very severe kind of way to say like, well, it's fine because look what the gods do, you know. But yeah, you know, Roman comes along and isn't so worried about about that. And I think that is such an important point and, and one that certainly makes... Phaedra's feelings and you know emotions in the whole situation a lot more understandable you can kind of you can just understand her as a person more rather than sort of a caricature of a yeah lustful or whatever kind of woman however you want to describe her in the Hippolytus a little bit or those earlier versions that we don't have that Mm -hmm. sort of messy woman the way the Greeks like to portray women yeah well that's perfect point i think to end it on the Mm -hmm. she's just acting like the gods (laughs) yeah so it's Uh, fine yeah exactly you know it can't be so bad but thank you so much for speaking with me today um jenny saint jennifer saint (laughs) go with both yeah (laughs) i i really appreciate it i'm really excited to to read your book and to talk to you more about it closer to and having read it (laughs) i hope it gets us in thank you so much for talking with me today yeah oh thanks a lot i really enjoyed it
nerds. Thank you all for listening. I was really thrilled to speak with Jenny about this, and I'm really excited to have her back on the show in the next couple of months to talk about her new novel. There's so much mythology coming out lately and novels and books and oh my gosh. Anyway, it's a real thrill. But Friday, Dr. Ellie Mack and Roberts talks Persephone. And again, you will not want to miss it. Ellie absolutely blew my whole mind with some of the information that she had on very real women and girls who were connected with Persephone. So excited for you to hear it. For now, you're all the absolute best. I am having a blast with these special Women's History Month episodes. What a crazy month it's been. Thank you, as always. I am Liv, and I love this shit. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.